Jesus Christ was killed. Having been put to death by the public agony of crucifixion, the lifeless body of Jesus was taken down from the cross and laid in a tomb, and the tomb was sealed. Even secular historians from that first century acknowledge the basic facts. The man, Jesus of Nazareth, was alive. He taught large crowds. He performed amazing miracles. But then he was arrested by the Roman government at the urging of Jewish religious leaders who falsely accused Jesus of trying to undermine the Roman Empire. After Jesus was tried with barely a hearing, he was crucified the story was over. There's no indication of a revolt by the Jews against the Romans, those Jews who were in Passover for that weekend, for that, who were in Jerusalem for that celebration, didn't, didn't rebel against the Roman government for doing what it did. Instead, they seemed resigned to the truth that Jesus had been crucified. John 1.11 says, Jesus the Son of God, came to his own, that is, the Jewish people. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. And so at the point of his crucifixion and burial in the tomb, that is fulfilled. He has come, he has presented himself, and the people have rejected him, either falsely accusing Jesus and urging his crucifixion, or in some cases just acquiescing to his execution as being fate. And yet here we are, 2,000 years later, part of a culture that, that barely cherishes history from the last century. We are now joined together with millions of people all over the globe, people of multiple ethnicities and languages, and we together are worshiping Jesus. How is that? How is it that today we are so entirely focused on a man who was born in a faraway village who lived 2,000 years ago and was publicly executed by the ruling government of his day. There are scores of religious systems throughout the world, but none unite the sort of worldwide cross-cultural breadth and scope of people that belief in the gospel of Jesus of Nazareth does. The gospel is bringing together people this morning who or worshiping the risen Savior, the one who by all rights the story should have ended with his death. And yet seven weeks after the, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, Peter, a fisherman by trade, a guy with no formal religious training, stood up in Jerusalem and raised his voice before a large gathered crowd during the midst of a major Jewish festival. Peter stands up to speak. The city at that point is packed with local residents, with pilgrims who have traveled from all over the empire, Jewish pilgrims who have come to celebrate the spring harvest. They have come to worship God for the giving of the harvest that spring. Many of those same people had either been there or they had heard what had happened at the previous feast, which was the coming of Jesus Christ at Passover. Am I doing... I'm making noise with my microphone. Is that, am I having a connection issue here? All right, we'll see. We'll try. Popping every now and then. That last festival, Jesus Christ is crucified at. And so people who are now at Pentecost have 
heard of that. At least many of them were there. They knew that Jesus Christ had been killed. They knew about him. During the the previous three years, many of them had seen Jesus as he traveled throughout Judea and Galilee, and he was speaking, and he is doing miracles, and crowds gather wherever Jesus Christ goes. Some followers, some gawkers, some just curious about him. But by Acts chapter 2, by the time the Feast of Pentecost comes, all of these people had no doubt heard the news. Jesus Christ was dead. Jesus Christ had clashed with the Jewish religious leaders time and time again, and ultimately they had charged and arrested him, had the Romans take him into custody, and he is tortured and beaten and crucified and buried in a tomb. The historian Josephus, who writes from that era, tells us that at Passover times, there were roughly two million people that passed through Jerusalem. Now, we don't know at Pentecost, when Peter is preaching, what that number was, but but it would be way underestimating to say there were at least 100,000 people in Jerusalem at that point. We also know from what we've read in Acts chapter 1 that there were in Jerusalem at that time about 120 followers of Jesus Christ. So do the math. Hundreds of thousands of people in this tiny tenth of a percent of that population that, that are there who are still followers of Jesus. And yet in the midst of all that, Peter stands up and he speaks in a loud voice to address the crowd and there is one headline that Peter wants them to take away. It's in Acts 2.36. If you have a Bible, Acts 2.36, Peter says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That sentence is is almost at the end of Peter's sermon. It's a sermon that began back in verse 14. We have a large part of it, but Luke also tells us later on in verse 40, there were other words that were recorded, so we don't have all of Peter's sermon, but we've got the gist of it. And the headline that Peter wanted his audience to mull over was this one. This was the thing. Jesus of Nazareth, whose crucifixion you participated in either willingly or by being complicit, this Jesus was designated by God. The the creator that you are here to worship, the God you are here to worship, has made this Jesus to be Lord and Christ. That's what Peter wants them to understand. He could have used no higher terms to try to impact his audience when he was describing Jesus. And so we need to understand these. Let's take a moment and think about these. Lord and Christ. Lord comes first. The Greek often uses word order to establish priority, our our bolding or underlining. This is Peter's way of making this bold. Jesus is Lord. The Greek word kurios, a, a ruler, one who is in authority, one who has the right to reign. During his sermon, Peter had clearly affirmed what he meant by the lordship of Jesus Christ. He used Old Testament references, references that that Jewish audience would have been very familiar with to explain to them what Lord means. If you look back at Acts chapter 2, verse 21, and he's quoting from the book of Joel, and he says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That phrase, the name of the Lord, 
appears almost 90 times in the Old Testament. It is something that a Jewish reader was very well familiar with. He didn't have to try to explain it further when he said, call upon the name of the Lord. They could go back to their Jewish patriarch, Abraham. And Abraham, when he first believes in God in Genesis 12, it says he built an altar to the Lord and he there called upon the name of the Lord. The Ten Commandments warn against taking the name of the Lord your God in vain. David, when he comes up against the Philistine enemy Goliath, says, you, you come and you have a sword and a spear and a javelin. I come to you in what? The name of the Lord. I come to you in the name of the Lord. Psalm 113, verse 3 says, From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. In Hebrew, the, the, the word for Lord was Yahweh, Master, God over all, maker of earth, the one who is sovereign in ruling over it. The one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is king. In fact, Jesus himself, before his ascension, says to his disciples in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. He is Lord. And here stands Peter. Put yourself in, in his Shoes for a moment. He is ascribing lordship to a man that the, the vast majority of this audience presumes was killed by the Romans less than two months earlier. And Peter is saying, Jesus, this one you crucified, he is Lord, he is sovereign, he is worthy of praise. John 13, 13, Jesus said, you call me teacher and Lord and you are right, for I am. Jesus did not shy away from identifying himself as the Lord, as they understood the Lord to be from the Old Testament, the sovereign master. Jesus is Lord. But that's not all. Peter says, this Jesus whom you crucified has been made both Lord and Christ by the God that you are here to worship. He is the, the Christos. The, the idea is anointed one, one who has been designated for a, a particular purpose, in this case designated by God. The Gospels often show us the term the Christ. They introduce us to Jesus as the Christ in John 1.41. Andrew is excited and he tells his brother Peter, we have found the Messiah. And as John is recording this, he, he puts a note next to it and says, which means Christ. We understood that, that when Andrew went to Peter and said, we found the Messiah, this is the Christ. In John 4, the Samaritan woman who, who meets Jesus at the well he speaks to her and she goes back to her village after meeting with Jesus and she says, you, you need to come see this man. He knew all about my life. He may be the Christ, is what she says to her village. And after the people went out and they heard Jesus teach, it says they responded by believing that Jesus indeed is the Savior of the world. The Gospels keep putting together the idea of the Christ with Messiah and Savior. These all go together. The Christ is the one who is anointed by God for the purpose of saving his people, of rescuing them from their enemy, which is sin. The Jewish people were waiting for the Christ to come and rescue them. And so when Jesus of Nazareth comes and he begins to teach and these large crowds form and he performs signs that are supernatural in nature, things as we read last week in Acts 2 that are God's attesting to the fact that this is not some ordinary man, that this is indeed the one, they are seeing that this could be the long-awaited Christ. And then he is killed in the most shameful way possible. 
nailed to a cross for nothing that he has done and yet publicly crucified for all to see his humiliation. In the eyes of the onlookers, Jesus was not merely defeated, he was crushed. He was put to death right before their eyes. Imagine in our own culture the sort of hopelessness and disenchantment people go through when their political candidate loses, the the sense of discouragement and sort of end of the world kind of fear. Well, magnify that by about a hundred times and you have this sense of the Jewish people of if this this was our Messiah, this is how it ended. What hope is left? When Jesus died, any hope that he was the Savior seemed to vanish. And yet here is Peter in Jerusalem, boldly declaring, this Jesus whom you crucified is both Lord and Christ. He, this man from Nazareth, this one who was rejected, this one who was tortured and crucified, has the right to rule over you. He is Lord, and he is the Savior who has come to rescue you. Ultimately, Peter's ultimate proof for these declarations. That headline in verse 36, Jesus is both Lord and Christ, his ultimate proof for that lies in what we are celebrating today, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the fact that, yes, Jesus was killed, but he rose from the dead. The resurrection did not make Jesus Lord and Christ. The resurrection had to happen because he is Lord and Christ. The resurrection was the affirmation of what God had already designated, that he is indeed Lord and Christ. Death could not hold him. That's why 2,000 years later, there's not just some handful of people in some corner of the world who are honoring some former teacher and his writings, but rather there is an army of people around this world this Easter Sunday, many of them in their homes like you, who are lifting their voices in praise for this one who is Jesus. Because we believe that Scripture teaches that our Savior lives. Death could not hold him. Look at verse 23 of Acts 2. It says, This Jesus delivered up According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. That that phrase, loosing the pangs of death, was the same kind of language that was used for, for birth pangs. When the pain of labor finally comes upon an expectant mother, there is no stopping the delivery of that child. When our third child was, was coming near delivery and we are, were four or five blocks away from the hospital and, and my wife said, the baby is coming, it didn't matter that at that moment I said, but honey, we just have to wait, we're almost there. Just a little longer and we'll be there. There was no stopping her birth. And the point that that Peter is making here, that's the language he's using here. Death is trying to hold its grip on Jesus, and it cannot stop the resurrection. It cannot hold Jesus. The Lord and Savior is coming forth from the tomb, and nothing can stop him. Let's read on, because Peter is going to quote now and explain why this is so, because verse 25 begins with the word for. You're going to keep seeing throughout this passage, for and therefore, because statements. It was not possible for him to be held by death, for David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. 
For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, now Peter, this is Peter translating, interpreting what it is they've just read. I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Stop there. We've already seen Peter go back to the Old Testament book of Joel, and he used Joel to, to start this message. He used Joel to explain what it was that had initially gathered the crowd. If you remember, it was this violent wind from heaven that they hear and flames of fire. And, and, and so he goes back to Joel to say, what you're seeing is what Joel prophesied, and that is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. This is God pouring out his spirit on his people, just as Joel prophesied to your ancestors and to us. Now Peter turns to Psalm 16, and this is the writing of David, and he does this to explain the impossibility of death holding Jesus. And so that's why Acts 2.25 begins with, for David says, it was not possible, verse 24, for death to hold him because Scripture through David, had already told us that it was impossible. 1,500, 1,000 years, I should say, earlier, David said it in Psalm 16. This was not possible because death could not hold him because of what God's Word says. Now, the, the point that David is, is making that Peter is going to focus on is, is in Psalm 16.10, and in this passage, in Acts 2, it's verse 27. That's the primary point that Peter wants to, to exposit, if you will, to explain his point about the resurrection. But it's interesting to me that Peter jumps into the middle of the psalm. Psalm 16.10 is the key verse, but he starts at verse 8. And I, I don't think it's simply that he is wanting to sort of set the context for verse 10. He could just jump in and he could quote verse 10 and explain what his point is. But he jumps in at verses 8. And it says, verse 8 and 9, it says, Because the Lord is always near, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. As I thought about this, I thought, why, why does Peter start there? Why not just get to the point of the resurrection in verse 10? Why, why is it that he speaks from verses 8 and 9 first? And, and I want to suggest to you that he's not simply giving context. But Peter, in this moment, is mirroring the confidence with which David first spoke those words under the inspiration of God. As, as David says, I know the Lord is with me, and I will not be shaken. In fact, my heart will be glad, and my flesh will rest securely. Here is Peter standing in front of a potentially hostile crowd and telling them, you are guilty of killing Jesus. For, for Peter and those 120 or so followers, this is as perilous a moment as you can get. The, the, the very last feast that everybody had gathered at was the one where a mob is shouting for the crucifixion of a man who has done nothing wrong. They, they want Jesus murdered. 
And now Peter is standing in front of a crowd and with clear eyes and a heart that is filled with confidence, he looks at them because he knows God is near. God is with him. God is at his right hand. And Peter is not shaken in this moment, not because he suddenly becomes some wonderful orator. It is because God is with him. The Holy Spirit has been poured out on him. And with this glad-hearted rejoicing, Peter is able in this most perilous of moments to rest in God and boldly preach the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's what he does. And so when you get to verse 27 and he says the part that he really wants them to hear, he says, for you, this is now quoting David saying this, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. David wrote that, but David, as, as Peter will go on to remind us and, and interpret this passage, says David was dead. David did die. He was buried. There was still knowledge of his tomb and all of the, the normal elements of decay that happen to human flesh after it is buried. That phrase, abandoned to Hades, is not, does not mean hell. It, it's simply the Old Testament language for the place of death. He's saying David died. David went to the place of death. His soul left his body lifeless. His body was placed in the tomb. It was buried and it was subject to corruption. And so Peter is simply stating the obvious in verse 29 when he says, we know that the patriarch David both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. But then Peter says, what has to sound in some measure stunning to his audience. Because Peter now says, you know what? When David said that, he was speaking prophetically. He was not speaking about himself. He was speaking about the Savior who was to come. He's speaking about a descendant of his whom, in fact, he believed would sit on the throne because God, verse 30, had sworn an oath to him that one of his descendants would be on the throne. Again, imagine how hard this is for this audience to comprehend. What do you mean a descendant of David on the throne? After David, there was Solomon. After Solomon, the kingdom divided. And then it wasn't long after that, in 586 BC, that the Babylonians come in and they lay siege to Jerusalem. And that is the end of the Jewish monarchy at that point. For hundreds of years, for centuries, no one has sat on David's throne. And yet here is Peter now speaking to the Jewish people, saying not only is there a descendant of David, who is now on David's throne, but who also tasted death and yet was not abandoned to the place of death, nor did his flesh decay in the tomb. How could that be? Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. He was not abandoned. He did not see decay because God raised him. And Peter is saying, when he says we all, me and this other 120 or so followers who are here in Jerusalem are here to testify to you the truth that we have seen Jesus. We are witnesses of the resurrection. He is alive. And so verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Peter's brought the whole thing full circle, right? At the beginning of the sermon, what had attracted the crowd in the first place, the wind, the flame, the disciples now speaking in languages that they 
could not possibly have learned in that instant. They did not know them on their own, and now they are suddenly able to speak these languages. And the crowd had gathered to see all of this and to try to fathom it. What, what's happening here? What is it that we are seeing? And God has used all that to bring them to this place so that they might listen to Peter who says, what you're seeing, what you're hearing, is God pouring out his spirit on his, on his people just like the Old Testament prophet Joel said he would do. But, and, and, and here's the key, here's what, what Peter's getting at, there's something else that's happened behind the scenes. There's something else that you haven't seen. You're seeing the outpouring of God's Spirit on his people, but there's something you didn't see. God's Spirit came because the man that you killed, Jesus of Nazareth, rose from the dead, and we saw him alive, and he ascended into heaven. Remember at the start of verse 33, how does it begin? Being therefore exalted and having received from the Father the promise of the Spirit, he has poured out the Spirit, what, what you're seeing and hearing. There's, there's another one of those therefores. Because Jesus was raised from the dead and exalted, the Spirit has come. And so the very thing that, that brought you here to listen to me that you heard and saw the pouring out of the Spirit goes back to the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, just as God had promised. Because the Spirit would not come until first Jesus was shown to be the Lord who is ruling. It is his resurrection and his ascension that leads Jesus to now be working with God the Father in distributing the Holy Spirit to his people. And Peter says, that is what you are seeing and hearing at the end of verse 33. This is what you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Verse 34, for, another, another because statement, here comes another explanation. He's pouring out the Spirit, you're seeing it, because David did not ascend into the heavens, but... David himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter takes one more reference to the Old Testament. Again and again, what he's saying to them is, the word of God says this, you know this, you've read this. And so this time he quotes from Psalm 110. He quotes just verse 1 of Psalm 110. Peter had heard Jesus preach from this very verse. If you go back to Luke chapter 20, it's another one of those moments when the Sadducees, the, the Jewish religious leaders known as Sadducees, were trying to, to publicly outwit Jesus, trying to stump him in some way. And it's another one of those scenes where Jesus just completely turns the tables. And he quotes Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, David speaking, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And David now, quote, says this in Psalm 110, Jesus brings it up to the Sadducees and he says, so how is it that the Christ, the Lord, the Messiah, how can he be David's son? How, how do you explain David calling his son Lord? You normally think it'd be the other way around, but how is David calling his son Lord? How can a son of David essentially be the Messiah? And in that instance, the, the Sadducees were silent, silenced. They turned and, and, and they walked away because they knew at that point, they, they had to affirm David's words. It's part of the Psalms. They, they couldn't deny that David said that, but they also knew that if they admitted it, that what they were doing in front of a crowd was admitting the possibility that this Jesus, this one in the line of David, this ancestor, could very well be the Messiah, could be the Lord that David was referring to. When Peter quotes it here, 
Peter has clearly taken the door that Jesus opened when he asked the Sadducees that question, and Peter's going to walk through it and say, that's because he is. Jesus is the Lord. David was referring to Jesus. A son in the line of David would be the Christ. Peter is now, now bringing this verse to them and saying it's not just possible that Jesus could be the Messiah. Jesus from the line of David is the descendant that David was looking forward to when he wrote that verse in Psalm 110, the one that ultimately he, David, would recognize as Lord, the one who would ultimately make his enemies his footstool. He's speaking of Jesus, the one who would be seated in the place of honor and glory. Jesus is now in heaven, and he is sending his spirit, and he is bringing salvation to sinners, because Jesus is not only the master with authority, Jesus is the Christ. He is the Savior. He is the one who sends his spirit to awaken dead souls and to pour out life on them and save them. By God's plan, David would call his son Lord. David's son would become his superior. And so Peter, the fisherman, in, in almost attorney-like fashion now, has taken the Jewish scriptures and his own eyewitness account and that of the 120 or so others with him, and he has made this airtight case that all wraps up in verse 36 when he says, So all of you, house of Israel, listen to this. Therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Because death could not hold him. He is risen. This Jesus who you may have thought was weak and crushed and defeated is Lord over his creation, and he is Messiah. And by his death, he came to save you from your sins. He came to rescue you. So verse 37 says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were at it that day about 3,000 souls. How is it that 2,000 years removed from the days when Jesus Christ walked the earth that we still preach Christ crucified? Some of you who are watching... Some of you know people whose answer to that question would be because you're fools. You, you believe in this guy from 2,000 years ago. You worship this guy who lived millennia ago and, and who died, and you're fools. The Bible, frankly, foresaw that, that you might answer that question that way. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it says that it pleases God to save people through what the world calls the foolishness of preaching Christ crucified. In 1 Corinthians 1, it says, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. 
There is no greater proof of that passage in 1 Corinthians than what happened in Jerusalem on Pentecost. Peter had just stood before thousands of people, and he had called them murderers. He had said, you who have come as pilgrims to come and and carry out these sacred deeds of worship here on Pentecost, he has just said to them, you rejected your Messiah. He came to you, Jesus of Nazareth, and you crucified him. And that Messiah who was crucified is now risen, and he has ascended into heaven, and he is Lord over creation. Not only did Jesus rise, death could not hold him no matter how it tried. Peter will begin a later message in Acts chapter 3 by saying, you killed the author of life. You may have crucified the creator, but death could not hold him. Because in Jesus is life. You can dismiss him. You can reject his word. You can call Jesus and all of his followers fools and liars, but you will not stop him. Death could not hold him. Jesus is risen. He is risen in power. He is ascended to the seat of authority, and he is coming again for his people. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 that for those who are believing, it is the power of God that saves them. That's why Peter says it here in this passage, this promise is for you and your children and all who far off, who are far off, whom the Lord God calls to himself. God is at work in his Holy Spirit, and he has extended this promise for you and your children and all who are far off. And so the most important question I would ask you as we conclude Peter's sermon is, is Jesus Christ your Savior? Have you come to believe in Jesus Christ as the one who came to rescue you from your sin by paying the price for it in his death on the cross? Have you admitted? And this is when Peter says, repent. He is saying, have you admitted your rebellion against God, that you have have come up with some self-sufficient sort of way of of thinking that you can do it, that, that you can provide for yourself? Have you turned from that and have you put your full trust in Jesus Christ, believing that he was crucified in your place and that he is risen and coming again? And if you have, And if you are a brother or sister in Christ on this resurrection day, then I want to call you back to what Peter says here when he speaks those words of David from Psalm 16. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. Regardless of our circumstances, regardless of where we are at today, the fact that that you are watching from home and that we are not all together, we still are called to an unshakable, glad-hearted, rejoicing hope because Jesus Christ is risen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for surrendering to the cross that you might willingly become the substitute for sinners, that you might take upon yourself the wrath, the just wrath of your Father that we deserve for our sin. Thank you for bearing that in your body and experiencing that moment of being forsaken, that time on the cross when you cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That season of darkness on the cross when even the Father turned from 
vileness of our sin that had been heaped on you as you suffered in our place. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are Lord and Christ and death could not hold you and that in great power you came forth from the tomb and that you are alive and we worship you as Savior this day. I pray, Lord, that if there is anyone watching this who is not trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, for forgiveness, for reconciliation with the God of the universe, that today would be the day that you would bring them to believe in the risen Savior. And Lord, for we who are trusting in Jesus Christ, we pray that by your Spirit in us, you would restore in us an unshakable, glad-hearted, full-hearted confidence that we have hope in you, regardless of how separated or isolated we might feel, that you are near to your people. And because you are with us, we will not be shaken. We pray this all in the name of our risen and coming Savior and King, Jesus Christ. Amen.